Hi, this is Anishka Fernandopoli. I hope this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button under my picture on dharmaseed.org or go to my website, anushkaf.org, A-N-U-S-H-K-A-F.org, and click on donate. Thanks. I appreciate your support. So when I was a kid, I grew up in Baltimore, and my family were immigrants from Sri Lanka. Can't hear the, the volume. It's too loud. <laughs> it's too loud. It's good? Okay. So uh, I'll tell you the story about how I learned how to swim. So my parents didn't know how to swim, but they took uh, me and my brother to the YMCA. Uh, and at the YMCA, they give you a little test to see what level to put you in. And they have um, like guppies and tadpoles and uh, minnows and fish and flying fish. And I think like porpoises were like the top of the whole system. So um, my parents didn't know how to swim, but in the kind of generous gesture that parents do, they wanted us to learn how to swim. So we went to the test and my brother, who's about two years older than me, uh, did it first. And they said basically to, to cross the shallow end of the pool, you know, get in the water and like they want to see what, what you can do. And so he got in and we didn't know how to swim at all. So he just started walking slowly, <laughs> like across the pool in slow motion. And then, um, so then when it was my turn, I did the same thing. Like, you know, I admired my brother, so I got in the pool and I also started walking in slow motion across the pool. And we got out the other side and we were so excited about it, you know. We were like, that was so cool. It was like walking on the moon. It's amazing, you know. And I'm sure the placement uh, people were like, you know, not only do these children not know how to swim, they don't even know swimming exists, you know. <laughs> they might have never seen a swimming pool or a body of water before. <laughs> but I'm happy to say, you know, we did go through the the system there and learned how to swim. And uh, you know, now swimming is uh, actually one of the main forms of exercise I enjoy doing and uh, continue to swim. And more recently, I learned a new stroke. I learned the butterfly stroke um, from watching YouTube videos. Uh, <laughs> and uh, even as I swim now, I, there's a continual inability to pay attention and to uh, learn aspects of how to swim more efficiently and uh, I still am enjoying it and learning it. And I tell you the story because when most people come to meditation practice, it's kind of like they don't know there's a pool, <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know, most of the time it's like, uh, like we don't know anything about the mind. We don't know how to watch the mind. We don't know that there is a mind. Like We don't know anything about qualities of mind. You know, it's kind of a complete mystery, and yet all of us can learn. You know, like all of us can learn and all of us uh, continue to learn. So I want to um, reflect with you some about this path of practice that we're on, um, about some of the learning that we have been going through here together, just to help get some perspective on some of the things that might have been going on for you on retreat. And also just share a uh, 
some more uh, advice at this point in your journey. So one thing that happens when we start to pay attention to what's going on in the heart and mind is that uh, there's a lot of stuff that we have been pushing away that starts to surface. And it's kind of like as if the entirety of what might go on in our experience is like this piece of paper. And yet for most of us, there have been aspects of the experience of the body, the experience of the mind that is difficult for us to see, either that we don't uh, identify with or we don't want to identify with, that our conditioning has told us is not okay, uh, that we reject and try to avoid. And so then what our life is like is a constant pushing away of these different aspects. So, for example, if uh, jealousy comes up and we don't want to feel jealousy, we have to push that away. Right? Hold that up. If bodily pain arises, of course, we don't want to feel pain. So then we have to push that away when that experience comes up. It could be that when memories of a certain period of time uh, come up, uh, we don't want to, f- to think of them. We don't want to think about thoughts of being a teenager or some things we've done, so we have to push that away. It could be that we're uncomfortable with sexual feelings. Uh, particularly on retreat, we might feel like, oh, they're not spiritual or something, so we have to uh, submerge them, so then push that away. And you see where this is going, is that we end up having to live in this tiny, crunched-up little space, you know, kind of bouncing off the edges there, and constantly putting on blinders when something comes up, pushing it away, and having to, to space out, ignore it. It's actually a very, very stressful way to live. Yeah. And it's like a kind of stress that we don't notice until we start to let go of it, until we can start to relax and open and actually start to unfold this, begin to see what is here. So one aspect of practice is learning to uh, relax and open and see the full range of what shows up in our human experience through the body and mind. And in this way, we allow ourselves to uh, become more integrated. We uh, remember, remember, like collect the members of the body back together, collect the members of the mind. And we live in some greater sense of uh, fullness, And yet, as we start to do that, in this unfolding, in this, uh, this uh, opening to what's there, a lot of stuff comes up that we pushed away for some good reason. Like, it's actually very difficult to be with. It's difficult to bear. So, for example, uh, many times on retreat, people re, uh, report to us they have the experience of uh, having kind of a life review going on. So many of you may have had experience like this. When sometimes it's periods of your life, or sometimes it seems like the whole life is going through. And like, why is this happening? You might think, like, what, what's going on here? And sometimes we're remembering very painful things and reliving them in excruciating detail now, and kind of trapped by our uh, discipline, our posture of sitting still uh, to be with it. You know, these these movies are going on and. Usually they're ones, if you look at them, of things that we've done that we regret, you know, things that we've done to harm 
uh, ourselves and others, and then things that we have perceived others to have done to hurt us. And I remember at some point going into my teacher and saying, like, you know, the instruction is to be with it, see the thoughts, be with the emotional fuel of that, not identify with the thoughts, see that as story, and went through what seemed like like hundreds of rounds of this. And I was like, is this the 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 thing that is supposed to be happening? Like, is this like a endless spool of pain that needs to be un- unraveled and at the end is freedom? And it, I, it was very painful to consider that, but, but to my uh, great delight, she said, no, that's not actually the path. You know, this path does not mean that you have to go through all that because, uh, you know, you go through all that and then you start on your next life, your past life, and then the, the one before that, and, you know, if you believe in that. But there, there's actually no end to that. And it's not necessary uh, to go through every single thing in that way. And yet also, if that's what's showing up, we have to learn to be with that. So we want to learn to be with that with balance, with dignity, with openness, and really to learn from that. So, so I want to talk a little bit about, you know, what can we learn from these kinds of experiences? What is, what is there to teach us from this? So I talked in another uh, evening about this uh, alignment that happens, you know, the Dhamma being like, like natural law and how we're out of alignment with that and because of that we suffer. So one way to, to think about what's happening in these, these moments when these things are coming back for us is that it's showing us times in which we were out of alignment. You know, that's as we become more sensitive and more open and more tuned in, it reveals these things that we otherwise were kind of glossing over or jumping over or ignoring or didn't have the capacity to be with at the time. So one of the aspects that we can learn from this, one of the insights that we can have around this is to understand causality. So understanding causality is basically understanding something about like a cause and effect, kama uh, vipaka, as Greg was talking about, action and result. And you can see in this that there's something about the, the universe that is, is lawful, and the fabric of the universe has a quality of an, an ethical quality to it. You know, the quality of integrity, of ethics, that the precepts that we uh, take in the beginning of the retreat and periodically uh, reflect. And they're both kind of aspirational uh, vows or trainings that we take, but they also are expressions of what it looks like to live an awakened life. And what it would be like if we fully were integrated and understood our connection to ourselves and others. So these times when these things come up, it can be very painful to feel them. And it actually is good to feel the sense of suffering from these past actions. Usually most of the afflictive uh, mind states are considered uh, unskillful, you could say. But there's a couple of them that I want to talk about with you that might seem like they're not good ones to feel, but actually they're really helpful on our path. 
So the Buddha called these the bright guardians of the world, Sukha Lokapala. And then Pali, they're called Hiri and Otapa. And these are uh, terms that don't have also great English translations, so I'll do my best to talk in circles around them so that you can get some sense of what they're like. So Hiri is uh, like a sense of conscience, but it's referencing uh, internal. So meaning it's a sense of uh, refraining from doing something that is harmful based on our own sense of integrity and self-respect. So it's that when you think about doing something that arises that's uh, like something that's... uh, not aligned with the precepts that is harmful to someone else or taking something not offered. Uh, There's a sense inside yourself of dignity and a shrinking away from that. That happens. So this is considered a, a good thing for us to develop, sort of tune into that sense of inner integrity and wholeness that's like, oh, don't do that, don't go there. And then on the other side, after you've done something, it's a sense of remorse. So remorse is to be contrasted with a sense of guilt. Remorse is a wise understanding uh, that a certain action that was taken was not skillful and feeling the pain that that has caused oneself or others. So learning that, kind of feeling the burn of that can help us to uh, remember that the next time. It can help us to align. Guilt, on the other hand, has a sense of self in it. There's a sense of me. So me who did this. Me who now needs to be flagellated. You know, me who uh, takes ownership of this thing. So in that, there's a a lack of understanding that all there is is these different states arising and these actions happening. There's no permanent, independent, controlling doer in the system. So it can be somewhat subtle. Well, what's the difference between guilt and remorse? You can feel into that a little bit, feel into what the, the remorse is actually a wise state. It still feels kind of warm. Uh, and it still feels like a serious thing, but it's heartfelt and sincere in some way. There's some learning. It's onward leading, you could say, in the path. Now this other one, otapa, is uh, kind of oriented towards an external reference. So it's uh, shrinking away from doing something that's unskillful and wholesome, Uh, because of concern about the results. So this could be because of concern about uh, getting caught doing it and what the results would be in that way, like punishment, or it could be concern about getting caught and what people would think of you from that. So this is another element of conscience. There are kind of two aspects of conscience, you could say. 
And this one too is considered uh, skill, skillful or wholesome. So this supports our development of wise action. And it's also a tool for cutting through the habit patterns that keep us bound to this world of suffering. I like um, you know, metaphors a lot. And this, there's an ancient metaphor from Buddha Gosa that is the best one that, that I've heard about this one. So he says to contrast what is uh, hiri, uh, this is the sort of inner conscience from otapa, the external one. Uh, he says, imagine that there's an iron rod and one end of it is smeared with excrement and then the other end of it is burning hot red. So your reluctance to grab the end with the excrement, which is like a sense of disgust shrinking away, is like hiri like from your own internal sense, like, oh, I don't want to do that. And then your reluctance to grab the burning end of it is otapa, like, oh, that's going to cause a lot of pain there. (laughs) So, So this is actually a wise understanding. You know, this comes from, like, wise understanding about... uh, what it is to be whole, and what the results are of actions. And I say also in, the, in this tradition, the, the understanding about different states of mind and different actions, you know, they usually are, are discussed as um, skillful, unskillful, right? sometimes wholesome, unwholesome. But they don't have the same quality of judgment as uh, good and evil that particularly would label you as a person as this or that. So the whole teaching of the Dhamma is really oriented towards freedom, liberation, you know, towards what is aligned with the truth, what will be of benefit for ourselves and others. So it's in this way that the orientation about what's skillful or what's unskillful uh, is made, this determination. So it might come up for you, these, these different these guardians of the world, uh, in remembering things that uh, you might have done in the past. And if you do, uh, consider that just part of the process of purification. You know, as the system is sort of realigning itself, the kinks are being worked out. You know, the, the parts that were twisted up and in the unraveling, sometimes it seems like a bit of a messy process. Also, as people have uh, reflected here in the hall, this process seems to happen day and night. So it happens uh, when you sit here. It happens uh, when you're sleeping, too. Uh, So there's a perspective from which, uh, actually, we are not the teachers of the retreat. Uh, Me and Greg and uh, these guys here, not actually teaching the retreat. Uh, and you are also not the meditators. <laughs> but actually, this is the Dhamma teaching, you know, the Dhamma teaching the Dhamma. And uh, I told some people this in their interview, like, you can imagine like you're just simmering, you know, come into the hall, and it's like each of your little um, Zafu, Zabatans, and the chairs uh, are like these like slow burner things. <laughs> So you just come in and you just sit down and then you're just like being cooked, right? Little by little. 
so just let yourself be cooked, you know, and, and in the cooking sometimes there's like bubbles and smoke and, you know, different gurgling things and splattering. And, but don't worry about it, you know, day, night, whatever, it's just going on like that, right? Another thing that seems to happen in this process is that um, it's not linear. And it's really easy to come to a place where you feel like you've um, achieved some amount of like calm or concentration. You know, usually the things that we identify as good practice. And there comes this underlying view that either it's going to stay like this forever, or if there's going to be any change, it'll be like upwards over time. And then it's incredibly disappointing when it seems to be like, right, like all over the place like this. Yeah. So this is also part of our being a part of nature. You know, in nature, things do not move in a straight line like that. There's openings and closings. There's day and night. There's buds that open and then fall down. There's leaves that grow. So our practice is part of nature. Everything in this mind and body is part of nature. So if this seems to be happening, it just is a sign that, yeah, all of this is also subject to impermanence uh, and can try not to fret about it. So we practice this knowing whatever is here and opening in this way, the parts that have been curled up and crunched up. But then there is some development of wisdom that's part of this process. And in this development of wisdom, part of it is this understanding about what leads towards or away from happiness, harmony, wisdom. And here's where the system can start to learn in some ways. Like, oh, these states lead towards suffering. Uh, grasping leads towards suffering, Uh, hatred leads towards suffering, jealousy, revenge. And then these ones actually lead towards uh, well-being and this alignment. So when it comes up like metta, kindness, uh, compassion, generosity, sense of renunciation, all of this is uh, in the direction of the wholeness. So there, there is some discernment that is possible, and this too is part of our overall path of practice. And the Buddha outlines this as far as uh, the four right efforts. So the first part is to know what has shown up, uh, whether it's a state that is skillful, unskillful, wholesome, unwholesome. And then to understand causality as best we can. So what are the conditions that lead to the arising of the wholesome states? And then try to cultivate those. And then what are the the conditions that lead to the arising of the unwholesome states? And try to let go of or avoid those conditions. And then when each one has arisen, if it's a wholesome state, to actually nurture that along. And if it's an unwholesome state, to try to let go of that to recognize that's what it is. So we're doing this in the practice in many different ways. 
unfortunately, the path to learning this is littered with suffering, strewn with suffering. You're actually swimming through suffering with all of this. And a lot of the process seems to be having to tune into suffering on a more and more refined level. You know, in some ways, like tuning in uh, with greater and greater sensitivity and detail and refinement to what actually is causing suffering for ourselves and others. In some ways, you can conceive of these wholesome states as ones that just need to be uncovered. So it's encouraging to me that on retreats, uh, when people get quiet and spend time living with each other in a gentle and peaceful way as best they can. By and large, people start to become more tuned into life. You know, people become kinder and more gentle. Uh, people do things like try to move earthworms out of the path so that people don't step on them. There's a sensitivity of the heart that gets revealed which is a good sign. It's a good sign that uh, this freedom is here in some way. We're tuning in. We're kind of like this, this homing device is turned on, you know, and we're well on our way. And meanwhile, there's a lot of different twists and turns. So one of the uh, helpful things to try to keep an eye out for is whenever there's some idea that comes up of how it should be, how it should be in my practice, uh, how it should be uh, in terms of this other person uh, doing something. We limit ourselves by our own ideas of what's possible. Our visions, our ideas of what's possible are created only by our past experiences. And they're hard to see, these assumptions that we have a lot of the time. But we usually run up against them when there's some sense of dukkha, of suffering, too. Sometimes you can have some insight uh, and it seems like wisdom is there. But then there can be a quick proliferation of that. As the kalesas arise and a sense of self arise and takes ownership of this new idea, new insight. So keep an eye for that. And things can flip so quickly between wisdom and grasping or delusion. Some signs are this when you start to make up stories of yourself telling people about your insight, (laughs) writing books about your insight, uh, making Dharma talks about your insight. So it's not bad, but just keep an eye out for that. See how that arises, and then quickly some idea of me and mine grabs hold of it and starts to run with it. 
a couple of things that you might be experiencing now around this time of the, the retreat. So one might be the imagined conversations that you will have with people uh, when you, if you return home. <laughs> so planning what you're going to tell them and uh, explaining stuff to them and usually you script out their responses to. <laughs> and just to let you know from having much experience of retreats, it never actually happens the way you imagine it. So all of that is basically a giant waste of time. <laughs> so the mind will do it anyway, but just take it with like more than a grain of salt, you know, uh, because other people don't receive these scripts that you have uh, uh, created. <laughs> also, there's a way in which you can have some sense of even... Uh, psychological insight or an insight about some aspect of your life. And there could be something about that that is really true and is helpful, but then the mind can take that further in a way that is unhelpful. So I'll give you an example. Uh, I was sitting on a retreat once, a long retreat, and a lot of the thoughts that were coming up were about a job that I had, a job situation that was very difficult. And the boss was a hard person to work with. Uh, And actually some of this review that came up were a lot of um, unskillful things that she said. Uh, She had the the unfortunate uh, sankara of uh, telling one person something bad about the other one and so on. So it created a very difficult environment. So at some point arose what seemed like a wise insight, like, I need to leave this place. You know, that's, I, can't, I can't be there anymore. So that was actually true. That was probably a, a wise thing. But then I spent a lot of time uh, creating my resignation letter. <laughs> and you know, the mind was proliferating on this and trying to create the perfect resignation letter that was uh, like clear and telling it like it is but also dignified uh, and, uh, you know, so much time editing this imaginary letter. And I left the retreat and uh, went back to work and it turned out that the boss had quit. (laughs) So this is just to say that the conditions of impermanence are true everywhere, (laughs) in your practice, uh, internally here on the retreat, but it's not just because we're talking about in the hall, right? It's actually true everywhere. So all of the time that we plan and create ideas and of how things are going to go, uh, the energy would be better spent cultivating the practice of awareness. You know, our, our best friend in going back into our lives, our best friend here on the retreat, our best friend everywhere, is to develop this sense of loving awareness, kind awareness, and it's from this that we can discern what's the appropriate step to take. You know, what would be an action that's based in wisdom? We really can't map out all of the responses that people are going to give us. Yeah. So relatedly, advice is to uh, 
Don't leave before it's time to go. And there's something pointing about noticing this if the mind starts to lean in that direction. Because there's a way in which we can completely live our life like that, you know, always leaning out to the next thing. And the next thing never comes. It's always this thing right here. So you can notice this tendency in walking practice, if you're leaning towards the end of your path, or if in the transition, in the turn, you lose attention. For some reason, it seems like not worthy of attention there. You can notice this in the transitions between periods. Can we cultivate a steadiness of presence? Feel the pain of what it's like to lean. It actually is a suffering. It's a strain on the mind, just as it would be a strain on the body if we were sitting leaning forward all the time like that. So the best thing you can do is to continue your practice here and can consider that uh, if, you, if you have started a retreat now, it would be a five-day retreat. But congratulations, you have a bonus of either seven weeks or uh, three weeks of collectedness to begin this retreat. So I know many of you have gone on five-day retreats, and it's actually a lot can be learned in that time. Don't think that it's the end already. So learning about causality, learning about impermanence, learning about selflessness, learning about the unreliability of phenomenon, And then cultivating the wholesome, cultivating love, generosity, compassion, equanimity. So these are habits that we can develop. And we can notice in the state of practice here, the roots of both the unselfless states that guide us to take actions that we regret, and also the roots of the wholesome, when wisdom shows up. So it's always nice to notice when the mind seems to have some wisdom about something. Like there's a certain delight you can take when uh, there's some leaning towards something and then maybe it lets go. You'll be very happy when you see those moments of about to do something and then letting go. There's something selfless about that process too, but it's good to rejoice and see that it is trainable. You know, maybe it will learn to swim. Get okay. in and pat yourself like good mind, good mind. You know.
And there's ways in which we can bring this into our lives in whatever way that naturally our talents and our proclivities lead us. So there's a guy who is an artist in Chicago named Jim Bakor, who took to filling in potholes with mosaics of ice cream cones and popsicles. And uh, it's more delightful if there was a visual of this, but imagine, you know, there's this road that was riddled with potholes, and one day you come out, and instead there are these mosaics of popsicles all over the road. So he said his motivation was, he said, well, uh, I just want to brighten people's day in the tiniest of ways uh, with something that is usually uh, a big bummer, that could be, be made uh, unexpectedly smooth and somewhat delightful. So something that people uni- usually universally hate, like potholes, turned into something that they universally love, like ice cream. Right? Or in, uh, in Bhutan, there was a, a birth of the first uh, child of the king and queen of Bhutan in February, February 5th. And in honor of this, one month later, they uh, celebrated the birthday of this little prince by planting 108,000 trees. So every household planted a tree, and then uh, a bunch of other volunteers also planted trees. And it's kind of part of their prayer for the well-being of the prince, they said. So may he grow strong and healthy uh, like the trees. And it's also connected to the sense of uh, well-being of the country, where they aspire to have at least 60% of the country with forest cover. And at the moment, I think it's about 70% is covered with forest. So the practice that we do here is beneficial for ourselves and for others. And there's a, a quote from Thomas Merton where he's likening the uh, monastics to being like um, trees that purify the air for the world. So it seems sometimes like, oh, we're separate from all the action, but there's something very powerful energetically that's happening, both here and now, and then when all the trees get released. You all go out to be air purifiers in all different places. So allow yourself to learn from causality. Take heart in the courage it takes to face suffering, uh, the suffering that is being revealed in the practice. Trust that when the Dharma eye is opening, everything can teach you. I know many of you have learned this. You know, the bushes teach you, the sparrows teach you, the lizards teach you. And the Dharma is everywhere and it's being revealed all the time. So it's a very precious time in our retreat when this revelation is continuing. You have a beautiful momentum from all of your efforts thus far. 
So the alignment continues whether you like it or not. In fact, it'll continue even after the quote-unquote end of the retreat. (laughs) You're going to continue cooking just like you take a pot off the stove and continues to cook. So as Greg said, you can relax. Remember that what we're doing here is actually doing nothing in many different postures and just noticing how things are. And then learning from the rubs, from the friction of the ways that we're out of alignment. You can experiment with trying to understand this hiriyanotapa in your own experience. What is this wholesome sense of remorse, a wholesome sense of conscience as it arises? And remembering that we do this not just for ourselves, but for the benefit of all beings. So this alignment that I'm talking about is uh, something that is described in many different ways, but this word enlightenment or awakening uh, can be one that is, uh, feels foreign to many people. I just like to say it's good to recognize that this is completely possible in this lifetime it's completely possible for lay people to align. It's possible to do this and to not wear a robe. It's possible to have any haircut uh, and have this alignment happen. It's possible to have any name. It's possible to be any age. And this is part of the human experience. There are living examples among us here who know the Dhamma from their own heart. And all of you are on this path to alignment. So cook on, friends. Let yourself be cooked. We can appreciate our circumstances here. Being alive again. And of having an opportunity to practice for a few more days. Can rest with appreciation for those who have guided us. All of our spiritual friends. We share the blessings of our practice with 
all of these, with all those who are suffering, those we know and those we don't know. May our sincere efforts lead us to complete alignment, the truth of the way things are. for listening to the Dhamma. So have some time for walking and then a strong encouragement to come back for the chanting in the evening. Even if you'll be a first timer, you're still welcome to come. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.